I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. Did you know that we spend approximately one third of our lives in bed? We've talked before about how important sleep is to our overall health and well being and our boys' overall health and well being. And I have learned that my sheets and bedding can make all the difference. I need breathable sheets. I need soft sheets. I need comfortable sheets. But it can be hard to find high quality linens from sources that you trust. And that's why I am so excited to tell you about American Blossom Linens. Their bedding is made in America from 100% American cotton. It's sustainable. It's ethical. It's environmentally friendly and their sheets get more soft and more comfortable with each washing. Give them a try. Go to AmericanBlossomLinens.com. Use our coupon code ONBOYS. You'll save 20% and you will start getting a better night's sleep. AmericanBlossomLinens.com. Listeners, I know that you sometimes feel like your home is bursting with the boundless energy of your boys. Mine has been for a very long time. We want to tell you about Home Threads, where style meets the wild adventures of raising boys. At HomeThreads.com, you can find a collection of uh, furniture and home accessories designed to meet the needs of your growing boy family. They have everything from durable bunk beds to upscale gaming tables you can turn your home into an attractive, durable playground, believe it or not. Uh, Janet and I both love their baking dishes. Solid, beautiful, functional. Anything you need for your home, you can likely find on homethreads.com. And we have a discount code for you. Go to homethreads.com slash onboys. You can get a code for 15% off your first order. Because every leap, laugh, and loud moment deserves a space that embraces the chaos with style. Home Threads, love where you live. We've got the ADHD dude in the house. 
Stay tuned. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thanks for being here, and thanks for supporting our sponsors. Does any of this sound like your son? Can be impulsive does things without thinking about the outcome or consequences. Make self-defeating comments to elicit sympathy from you or others. Becomes argumentative or explosive when told to get off video games or the computer. Might be able to initially make friends, but has trouble keeping them. If you are like most parents, don't worry, you are nodding yes to at least one, if not more of these, and it certainly depends on your son's age. These are some executive function skills play into these these behaviors that you see. And it also can be a lack of social and emotional maturity. It can be ADHD, which is the most common neurodevelopmental condition and still is poorly understood. Today, we have on one of our favorite On Boys guests, holding the record in his fourth appearance on On Boys podcast, we have with us today... Ryan Wexelblatt, a licensed clinical social worker that you may know as ADHD Dude. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't believe I'm a fourth-time guest. That makes me feel good. Wow. I'm very flattered. We need to work on developing jackets like they do for five-timers on SNL. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What were you thinking as I was reading off that list of incredibly common frustrating behaviors? It's funny you said that because what I was thinking was um, I'm I'm in the process of having my website redesigned and my website redesigner, my website designer said, well, you don't really need to have this on here. And I said, whenever parents see that, one of the first things they say to me is you just described my son and I've Mm -hmm. never seen anything like this before. And I said, so for that reason, it's not leaving the website. Right. Uh, Because these are the pain points. Yes. That are going on in so many homes and so many parents are, uh, you know, pulling out their hair metaphorically, literally, oftentimes getting into huge fights with their kids, with their spouse, with their significant other, all kinds of tension. So there's got to be some better answers than fighting, yelling and screaming. There are. Absolutely. When you have parents that come to you and say, okay, yes, 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 this is my kid. Um where do you start with them? You know, what do you want parents to understand? And importantly, how do you differentiate some of that, which is like kids do that as they're growing to, Mm -hmm. we need some more concentrated support for both the child and the parent. Yeah. So one of the things I guess I should start with is when we talk about ADHD, um, I have a saying that most families of kids with ADHD are unintentionally misled as soon as their child receives a diagnosis. And what I mean by unintentionally misled is that they're really not provided with comprehensive information about what ADHD is, but they're also directed to treatments which are not recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So the first thing I want to do is orient them to what is the recommended treatment and why I believe in following those recommendations. Let's talk about that because ADHD is so common. The term is tossed about all the time and everybody thinks that they know what ADHD is. 
And then people think that, I mean, you want to be able to assume that if your child is diagnosed with ADHD, that whoever does that diagnosing, that what they tell you next is going to be reliable and complete information. And I want to just mention that, you know, when professionals do not know the uh, treatment recommendations, I don't blame them for that. Um, if I have to point fingers at anyone, I'm going to say, and this is kind of common knowledge, that the American Academy of Pediatrics has not done a great job of disseminating this information. So I just want to be really clear about that, that I never fault a teacher or therapist or whomever else for not who knowing are, this information. Who are extremely busy. You know, yes. we need to note handling all the other kids, all the other clients in their yes. practice. We all know that my God, teachers and therapists are among the most overwhelmed professionals in our society right now. As well as pediatricians. Right. And those in and, the medical field. Yeah. And I do want to say, um, listeners, you know that I come to this work from the world of writing. I do a lot of health writing. Ryan is absolutely correct. The American Academy of Pediatrics is kind of a, a gold standard. They do the studies. They analyze the studies. And so I know because I've also looked at it, what he is telling you about the uh, the recommended treatment is absolutely correct. That's the first thing. And then the next thing is um, I want people to understand that, number one, there is no blame in this. You know, sometimes, you know, I've, obviously most of my audience is moms and they'll say things like, am I too late? I say it's never too late to help no matter what age your child is. You mm -hmm. know? And then the other important thing is there is no blame here. Because, you know, I say in, in, in this case, when we're talking about helping our kids, guilt is a useless emotion. Guilt is not going to get you anywhere. So feeling the guilt, totally normal. Letting, Absolutely. Your, letting yourself beat yourself up and going around and around is not helpful. You kind of need to just right. push it aside, set it aside for a moment and just do the next steps. Absolutely. Then the next steps, for, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics for kids under six, is parent training first, followed by medication management if necessary, and when available, school interventions. For children six and over, it's parent training in conjunction with medication management, and if necessary, the school supports. One of the things that I love about this, both love and hate, because I'm a parent, I'm a parent that lives in the United States, we all want it to be easy, right? If it would be as simple <laughs> as take this pill and the problem is done and there are real no side effects to the pill. Fantastic. Bring it on. Let's do that. But that's not how this works. And the reality is that our children live in systems. They live in our families. That's where they are learning, they are interacting, and they can grow their skills. And so really, parents, these recommendations are underlying your power here, your role here, your importance in helping your child grow. Correct. Yeah. And and I think also, Jen, to your point is our kids are going to have to live within systems one day. Mm -hmm. And and if we don't teach them how to function within systems, then what is the pathway forward for them to live off the grid, I guess? Um, right. Right. We'll talk about ADHD specifically because this is your area of expertise, ADHD dude. But my opinion is that a lot of these things that you talk about are applicable to all parents. We all can do things to help support our child's um, executive functioning skills because these are skills that all children do need to develop. Some just need a little bit of extra support. Is that correct, Ryan? 
Absolutely. I mean, what I tell people is the strategies I teach can be used with any kid, whether they have autism, whether they don't have any neurodevelopmental difference. Um, everything's applicable here and none of it's going to do any damage. I mean, if you teach your child who does not have ADHD to learn how to conceptualize time better, right, that's not going to hurt them right. in any way. <laughs> right. So this is kind of the equivalent of, you know, exercise and eating right in that it's going to be good for you no matter what. Even yes. if sometimes it's not exactly your first inclination. Right. So we talk about kids living in systems and kids living in families. And you have been posting on Facebook and on your website lately about something that I want to talk about. And you call it the parental accommodation cycle. First, explain that what that is and how that relates to all of this. Yeah. So parental accommodation is a term used to describe when parents change their behavior to alleviate or avoid their child's temporary distress. Accommodation is done out of love and often out of fear. And what happens is when we accommodate, whether that's anxiety, whether that's inflexibility, whether that's poor treatment of family members, when we accommodate that, we allow the behavior to continue or the anxiety to you know, be sustained and it gets worse. So this concept um, actually comes from work out of Israel uh, called nonviolent intervention uh, that was created by a psychologist named uh, Chaim Omer. The work does not have a lot of name recognition in the United States yet. It's well known in uh, Israel where it's from and in uh, some European countries because it is evidence-based. The way it kind of came here was through a treatment for anxiety called SPACE, which is an, a treatment that is not about seeing kids and helping them overcome anxiety. It's about teaching parents how to not accommodate their child's anxiety. And that's how I how I came to this work and how I came to the term parental accommodation. One of the things that I want to mention about this is, you know, interestingly, when I post about this topic, I tend to get some pushback. I think the reason I get pushback is one, because it's difficult for people to understand because they sometimes say, well, why wouldn't you want to help your child feel better? And, and that's kind of based on the notion, right, that if they're in any kind of discomfort, we should take that discomfort away. Well, the problem with that is they don't learn independent problem-solving skills. They don't develop resiliency. And most importantly, they don't develop a sense of their skills if we constantly you know, take away any discomfort that they're experiencing. The way that kids develop self-confidence is through recognizing their abilities within themselves. It's not from us as parents telling them how great they are. It's not <laughs> from sitting in a therapist's office talking about feeling words. It's about recognizing their own abilities. So we know both from the science, the research, and if we think about it from personal experience, that some discomfort is necessary to grow. I mean, listeners, think about it. Think about all the times in your life where you have gone through something, frankly, probably very painful, um, had to do something that you didn't want to do. I will never forget, and Ryan, I know that this is not your direct experience, but I will never forget a moment in labor giving birth. And I'm like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. But I also knew the only way out is through. I had like trying to pull back from that pain was not going to get this done. And I had to, I had to be like, okay, here we go. And then you get to the other side and it's similar. Yes. 
Can I tell you something really funny about what you said with that? Oh, yeah. Is that I always think to myself, I will never have the level of resiliency of a mom because I've never had to go through labor. And I mean that. All the women right now love you, Ryan. <laughs> I mean that. I really do. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that is a really good baseline. And even if you did not give birth as a parent, you have gone through painful experiences. Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> You've gone through painful experiences, all of us. So however yeah. you became a parent, you can relate to that. Let's differentiate for a moment, though. I think it's the word accommodation, right? Mm -hmm. Because you get accommodations in school. A kid with um, with a, a learning disability can get accommodations. They can get more time to take the test. They can, if you have um, problem with your vision, you can get accommodations very appropriately to get mm -hmm. larger size texts. So what is the difference here? Kind of what's appropriate and helpful accommodation and what is accommodation that may be hindering? Yeah, I think we should talk about, you know, the idea of, you know, having um, accommodations in school. I really look at that as support. You know, when yes. when somebody's vision is impaired and they need, you know, bigger text, for me, that's not an accommodation. That's a necessity, right? That's support. I mean, that's just a given. Well, you just stated that so beautifully, so obviously, it's totally just meeting the need. Right. But because the system is not set up to do that, it's something extra. So it's an accommodation. I put exactly. air quotes around that. Right. Exactly. Wow. It, when When I'm speaking about accommodation in this context, it is specifically talking about allowing kids to avoid temporary discomfort and an emphasis on the word temporary there because all feelings are temporary. Right? And again, it's a very natural inclination to for parents to not want to see their child in any kind of discomfort. And I think, you know, as you know, I mean, all the research literature points to for my son's generation, you know, who was born after what 1996 and, and on, all the research literature is pointing to the fact that the reason that they seem to be the most fragile generation in history and have the most mental health issues is, you know, a confluence of the overprotection of them, you know, the not helping them to, to develop resiliency and, you know, these the, and obviously social media and these other factors. But I, I think we can really look at this on, on this broader perspective here and say, look, look at this generation, what's happened, you know, to our kids' generation. Mm -hmm. So... What you're saying is that we need to help our children to be able to do hard things. And that starts by not accommodating it, not alleviating it. And listeners, we've all done it because the truth of the matter is, for instance, your kid's discomfort when you say, hey, you got you got to get off the video game. You've played. It is time to do whatever. Homework, go to grandma's, eat supper, take a shower, all of that. That reaction, the blow up, guess what? That's unpleasant for you too. So we have all given in when maybe we shouldn't have. Right. And 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 a lot of that could be because we're emotionally exhausted in that moment. And you're yes. allowed to be emotionally exhausted. Yes. Yeah. Stay tuned after these messages for more on how we might be accommodating our children and how we can do that differently. I hear from parents all the time how bath time can be such an ordeal, and yet bath time can be really fun. In fact, here in the very cold winter, we use bath time as an activity. Dabble and Dollop has got this dialed in because they have bath products that are not only natural, healthy, free of toxins, all the things we want for our kids, but they're fun. 
Jen, you said when your boys were young, they loved to make potions. My son, Tyler, had so much fun mixing things together, making potions, recipes. He would have loved Dabble and Dollop's Day at the Beach bath mixing set because it's a collection of soap scents and a little mixing thing and your kids can combine scents and make their own creations. It is exactly the kind of thing that can turn bath time into a fun, enjoyable, creative endeavor instead of just a fight. And I will say the bubbles have been bow tested in the bathtub and they last. They stay bubbles for a long time. Dabble and Dollop has everything from bath time shampoos, bubble baths, body washes, conditioners, lotions, bath bombs, bath toys and accessories. There's so many things to explore at Dabble and Dollop. Go to dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys to get 20% off your first order. That's dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys, 20% off for being an onboys listener. So give us some examples of how this can kind of become a cycle and a pattern within families because so often it happens while we, you know, we're not aware that we're doing it. And as you said, we are doing our best with the tools we have, time crunched, stressed out in a culture that frankly doesn't have a lot of supports for families. Right. right. I mean, I can go all different angles with this, but I think, you know, what would probably be most helpful is if I speak about how I often see it in families of kids with, with ADHD, mm-hmm. which is accommodating and flexibility. Okay. So I have a saying that inflexibility is accommodated, flexibility is cultivated. When I see inflexibility accommodated in families of kids with ADHD, some of the examples might be, you know, the parent makes a completely different meal for the child because they just don't happen to like what's for dinner, you know, not asked to try it, right? Not asked to eat a little bit of it, just you can have something completely different because we want to avoid a blow up. Or at the same time, they're making the one meal, they've already got the other one on the burner because it's just easier. Yes. Easier, exactly. air quotes again. Yes. Another way I see it is allowing kids excessive screen time to to avoid, you know, blow ups. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be if a child has ADHD anxiety is that parents will let a child sleep in their bed because they, they think that the child's going to be traumatized somehow if they ask them to sleep in their own bed because that's scary, you know, for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but But again, going back to the example with inflexibility, you know, it might be that a parent doesn't stop at the supermarket or do a certain chore, you know, or errand on the way home because their child is going to whine about it. Those are all examples of how inflexibility is accommodated. So... When you start working with a family, what are some of the signs that you see that tee you off that this is happening? Because, of course, you're not with them all the time. You don't know that this is what's going on behind the scenes. I think I should explain first. Typically, by the time families find me, they have been through all the not recommended treatments. And they're at a point, unfortunately, of, of really suffering as a result of this. So what happens is when they hear me talking about this in a video, it resonates with them and they will absolutely identify, here's how I've been accommodating my child. Uh, I don't need okay. to identify it for them. They are very self-aware. Okay. Okay. So what I hear you saying is that though this starts out very well-meaning, very loving, in some ways, it's hindering the child's development. It's not helping the family develop those executive function skills. And it's really, it's harming the the family relationships as well. 
It is. And, and I don't want to scare anyone with this, but, but there, you know, I do want to mention there's really a correlation as well between parental accommodation and what is often known as failure to launch. I don't like that term because I don't think anybody's ever a failure to launch, but, but what we know is when parental accommodation happens, it can evolve into what we could call non-emerging adulthood, which is when a young adult is highly over-dependent on their parents and are not kind of functioning at a level we would hope for somebody their age, whether that's work or school or whatever it may be. And we know that all of the statistics right now show us that that has been on the rise in young males for I mean, probably at least 20 years. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. And certainly there are societal factors to that. I mean, it's not as easy for young men to find employment as it once was, but there's this other piece of it as well. We are not necessarily building boys' skills to function independently in the world. I just want to mention something about that. So I am starting a uh, post-grad certificate program through Johns Hopkins uh, School of Public Health in um, Adolescent Health. And I couldn't believe this when I saw this. There's a course on this in the program that I'm taking. Yes. I was shocked. This is how serious this has become that the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health is offering a course on it. I have so many thoughts right now. People are recognizing that this is a public health issue. And we have been hearing college educators now kind of ringing this alarm for at least 10 years going, hey, these kids that, that are coming to our colleges, they are not ready for life. So how do you, how do we move on? How do we move on from here? If this is resonating with some people going, oh, um, hmm, I think that I have actually been accommodating my kid. Just it's easier to let him play the video games than to set some healthy boundaries. One of the things, Jenna, I want to acknowledge is that, you know, first, I, I want to say if anybody's having a reaction to this and feeling kind of angry about it, you know, that's that's OK. I, I see a, a lot on social media of actually, I'm going to say influencers, and in some case, licensed mental health professionals, kind of encouraging the opposite of this. They are encouraging overprotection. They are encouraging not teaching kids resiliency. And I don't understand where this comes from or why, and and I don't think it's even something probably worth talking about, but, but I want everyone to understand there is a culture pushing against this right now in our society. Let's talk about that so that people can kind of understand maybe some of the differences. You know, there's there's a movement towards gentle parenting um, and that can be all kinds of extremes. You know, it, it can be everything from what I view as kind of accommodating, but it is also to me appropriately recognizing that children are humans who have emotions mm-hmm. as well and we need to pay attention to them. So to you, what is the distinction between accommodating and doing the opposite. I think doing the opposite to me, well, a few things. One, it's not based on research data that that is healthy. You know, when when I talk about parental accommodation, I always try to cite sources to show that there's literature on this. Mm-hmm. When I see online therapists or whomever teaching, you know, basically let your kids run the show and, you know, protect them from experiencing discomfort. I do notice that there's not research behind that. Okay. It's often used with terms like connected or gentle or loving. I just want to be really clear. I am, you know, I'm not bashing, you know, the gentle parenting approach. But what I do want to say is what what the gentle parenting approach started as has kind of, say, devolved into this loose interpretation 
of various forms of permissive parenting. And my understanding is that was never the intention of it. That is a huge problem in that so many things, once they get, especially online, and, right. you know, the same words are being used, but we're not talking about the same thing anymore. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So so I think the first thing is, again, just we have to acknowledge that right now there's kind of a culture pushing against this. And this can be really confusing for parents. Mm-hmm. Let me say what, what parents have said to me. What you're saying sounds right to me, but I've heard so much of the opposite of that. And my response to that is what I suggest to everybody is you make parenting decisions, not on opinions, not on social media, but on research data. I'm going to guess that there's also, there's zero harm in trying your approach. Again, we're talking about basically the equivalent of exercise and healthy eating, right? So you know that what you've been doing, let's face it, is not working for your family. Try something different see how it goes. I think, Jim, one of the things is that there is so much fear from parents that they are somehow going to damage their child by putting expectations on them or by requiring them to persevere through temporary discomfort. And and what I say to this always is that children are not fragile. Children are anti-fragile. When you treat them as if they are fragile, they receive the message that they are fragile, but they're not fragile. That's a really good point. I think a lot of parents of, of my generation are afraid of damaging our children mm-hmm. because frankly, a lot of us do feel damaged in some ways by our childhood. So we don't want to hurt our children in ways where we're still dealing with pain. So right. we're hurting them in different ways. Exactly. Where can parents start with changing this behavior? I know you talk about scaffolding better behavior. What does that mm-hmm. look like? Yeah. So for anything, you know, when we want to change something in, in our parenting, um, one, I think we have to be aware of it and recognize it and and look at it, you know, not from a place of blame or self-judgment and just say, I was doing the best I can at the time with the information I had available to me. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think the next thing we have to look at is in what areas am I possibly making my child's life too easy? And am I preventing them from developing the skills of allowing them to do things on their own? What am I doing that they are fully capable of doing on their own right now? And okay. then from there, we don't just say, okay, well, go figure this out on your own. We provide them with scaffolding, which means we create the structure around them to help them develop skills. So for instance, we can talk about, as an example, the gradual release of responsibility, which is I'm going to show you how to do something. Okay. And you're going to watch me next. We do it together then I will watch you do it and I'll only intervene if necessary. And then you do it on your own. That's what scaffolding is. It's teaching skills with the intention of being able to have kids, you know, do things independently. So I think of an example right away, as you're saying that, for instance, um, a child doing laundry, right? Like there is no reason that you need to keep doing your child's laundry until he leaves the house. He can (laughs) be doing that by 10, 11. I mean, it depends on the kid, right? Right. Right. But you don't just say, okay, go do your laundry. You need to, here's the washer, here's the dryer. They're all right. a little different. Boy, do you have to be specific about where the soap goes? I learned that one the wrong way. You know, <laughs> Me so too. You, right? So you, you <laughs> yeah. show them and then you watch them. And Ryan, I just had to go through with my 22-year-old recently. You cannot put the equivalent of three loads of wet sopping laundry just because it didn't dry and spin cycle throwing it in the dryer is not going to help if it's any consolation my 25 year old still does that 
Oh man. I'm like, get yeah. yeah. Of course he comes here to do that laundry because he doesn't have access to a washer dryer. So I'm still <laughs> scaffolding. I am still yeah. scaffolding. But that is a very concrete example to me. You know, it's a skill where you're touching and moving things. What does it look like, you know, for things like um handling distress over needing to turn off the video game or school refusal, for instance. Let's use the one about turning off video games. So what I teach parents is a strategy to help kids visually see the transition of time. So part of the reason that for kids with ADHD, they have difficulty getting off video games is because, you know, it's rewarding. There's a dopamine release. It's something that they can hyper-focus on. So to suddenly rip them out of that often causes emotional dysregulation. However, you know, and also on top of that, kids with ADHD have difficulty conceptualizing time. But if we allow them to see time visually and allow them to see visually when a transition is coming up, that can help with that process. Okay. Significantly. And I know you teach parents strategies to help them yes. teach their kid how to visualize time um, because it really isn't as simple as saying 10 minutes or you set a timer on your phone. That's not all that helpful. And it's not as simple as using a kitchen timer or saying, oh, it's 4.30, time to get off. Right. right. Yeah. Right. But it is pretty simple. I mean, for, to, for this specific strategy, what I actually use is an analog clock. Which, by the way, is a good thing for your kids to at least get some familiarity with anyway. Uh, there are a lot of kids that do not know how to tell time on an Absolutely. analog clock right now. The biggest challenge, of course, with all of this is it's not easy for the parent because you don't just do this and then everything goes smoothly and your kid suddenly develops these executive function skills. There is going to be discomfort and probably some unpleasantness involved as you work through this. Yeah, I, I think maybe what would be helpful to tell a, a little short story with what you just described. I met with a family where there was a tremendous amount of parental accommodation. And in this family, this boy who was 11 or 12 at the time, he would only eat about four or five foods. And for breakfast every morning, the only thing he would eat is pizza from a specific pizza place near them. So his mother basically every day had to order pizza so he would have it for breakfast the next morning from this place. And on top of that, not only would he eat nothing except pizza from this place for breakfast, but he would only eat it while she was dressing him as he watched things on his iPad. Did you say yeah. 11? Yes. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So what I explained to them is we talked about reducing accommodation and that started with, you know, you start making pizza at home with him. Okay. And, and, you know, first we have to establish that things are changing here. Things are not going to be the same, you know, and here's what this is going to look like. And what I said to them is you can expect that things are going to get worse before they get better. Okay. Mm -hmm. He is going to escalate in his behavior. He's going to escalate in his physical aggression because this is going to be very difficult for him because flexibility is an aspect of executive functioning. And when we're asking kids to become more flexible, that's challenging and they're often going to escalate. And for this boy, I said that particularly things are going to get worse before they get better because not only are we asking him to be more flexible, but this feels like a loss of control. When he can't have those three pizza yes. slices from that one pizza place every day for breakfast, it's going to feel like a loss of control to him. But things will get better, but often they do need to get worse before they get better. So you give parents that, okay, know that this is coming. What kinds yes. of tips uh, or tools do you give them to navigate that process? Because I found as a parent that I sort of need to be prepared to handle my own 
you know, your kid throwing a fit, uh, it triggers chemical reactions in you. And depending on the child, I mean, some 11 year olds are big and that can be physically Mm -hmm. threatening and scary. Yes. One of the takeaways I took from a parent program called the Nurture at Heart Approach, which is an evidence-based parent intervention, was that we don't give attention to negative behaviors and we give a lot of praise to the behaviors we don't want, even when they're things we normally wouldn't praise. So what I teach parents is you don't feed into negative behaviors by trying to reason with the kids or make them feel better. You know, I have a term for this. I call it getting sucked into the reasoning vortex, the argument vortex, the negotiation vortex. I have been in that vortex (laughs) before. It's not fun. And sometimes you don't know until you're like spiraling all the way down and you're like, oh, here I went. Exactly. And and on top okay. of that, too, what that might mean sometimes is that we don't give an audience to negative behavior or poor treatment of, of us. And and I find parents struggle with that. They will they will say, well, I don't want him to feel like I'm ignoring him. And I will say, you're not ignoring him. You're choosing not to give attention to that specific behavior when you're being treated poorly. Which, which is also teaching him without you saying words, but it is teaching him that people are not going to deal with you when you're like this. Correct. Uh, You can't use this behavior to get what you want, which parents, if you have been paying attention at all, we have all kinds of examples of grownups behaving badly in our society because it works for them. That's that's exactly what it's about. Yeah. So you have this conversation with your kid. Okay. Hey, uh, I'm not going to be your pizza delivery person every morning. I don't even imagine that first conversation going very well. Yeah, so I there's actually a systemic way of of doing this in this approach NVR nonviolent uh you know resistance and the approach is that we sit down and have there's two two big parts I want to mention is that we present a letter that's presented in a very loving way and is never about blame. We're not telling the child what they're doing wrong, okay? We're saying this is what we've done wrong as parents. We're owning responsibility for how we've accommodated them. We are not saying you need to change. We're saying I need to change because what I've been doing has not been helpful to you. Oh, okay. So that's the one part of it. And then the other part of this is what we would call enlisting supporters who are people who the child respects. So for instance, when a child is treating their family poorly at home, Okay. They often don't want, you know, an aunt or uncle who they really like or a grandparent or coach, whoever, to find out about it because they would be embarrassed. One of the keys with this is we're not going to keep your poor treatment and your disrespectful behavior a family secret anymore. The people who care about you are going to know about it. And we're not doing this in a way to tell on you. Rather, when you're struggling, these people, the supporters, are going to reach out to you and offer their encouragement and support. After these messages from our sponsors, Jen and Ryan will share specifically what that can look like for your family. I hear from parents all the time how bath time can be such an ordeal. And yet bath time can be really fun. In fact, here in the very cold winter, we use bath time as an activity. Dabble and Dollop has got this dialed in because they have bath products that are not only natural, healthy, free of toxins, all the things we want for our kids, but they're fun. Jen, you said when your boys were young, they loved to make potions. My son, Tyler, had so much fun mixing things together, making potions, recipes. 
he would have loved Dabble and Dollop's Day at the Beach bath mixing set because it's a collection of soap scents and a little mixing thing and your kids can combine scents and make their own creations. It is exactly the kind of thing that can turn bath time into a fun, enjoyable, creative endeavor instead of just a fight. And I will say the bubbles have been bow tested in the bathtub and they last. They stay bubbles for a long time. Dabble and Dollop has everything from bath time shampoos, bubble baths, body washes, conditioners, lotions, bath bombs, bath toys and accessories. There's so many things to explore at Dabble and Dollop. Go to dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys to get 20% off your first order. That's dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys, 20% off for being an onboys listener. So what might this look like when it comes to breakfast and a kid that's been getting pizza from the neighborhood pizza place every morning for who knows how long? Can I actually give you an example from this past week? <laughs> I would love an example. Okay. Yeah. So I met with a family of a 15-year-old whose behavior is impeccable at school, and he is very well-liked by his teachers and very charming. And at home, he, you know, if his mother tries to talk to him any, about anything, he will talk over her. He will physically intimidate her. He will control the conversation by cutting her off, whatever it might be. And he's and he does the same with his father, not to the same extent as, as his mother. So we identified who are the supporters going to be. One of them was a teacher from his school. One of them was a family member. And, and part of what we present to him is that, you know, these are people who care about you and, and want you to be successful. And when you are struggling with your behavior at home, they're going to know about it, not because, you know, we're, we're quote, telling on you, not because they want to shame you for it, but because they want to offer their support to you in times that you're struggling. Okay. The actual term for this is called constructive shame. And constructive shame is different than what we would call destructive shame. So destructive shame, right, is shame that serves no purpose for us. Most of the shame we experience is destructive shame. Okay, Beating Const myself up because I feel like I haven't done the best thing for my kid, even though I didn't even know the other thing existed as an option. Exactly. Right. Or telling our kid that they're bad because of their behavior. Right. Yep. Constructive shame is when we feel bad about something that we did hurtful towards somebody else. Okay. So the idea with constructive shame is with this, that when we tell supporters about how the child is treating the parents poorly or whatever might be going on, and this behavior is no longer a family secret, they experience constructive shame because they didn't have to experience constructive shame before because this has been kept a family secret. It's kind of accountability and part of what we have lost by losing our village. So many of us, we are really raising our children in isolation, just in our families and parents, you know, it is embarrassing for us. We feel embarrassed to admit my kid is yelling at me. I am scared of him and I can't, I can't control this behavior. You don't want to tell people that because you're worried of judgment by enlisting the support. You have other people saying not cool, dude. I'll say it this way. It's it's that's exactly what it is. It's it's going back to the premise of the African proverb that it takes a village to raise a child yeah. and it's bringing back the village. Exactly. Uh, so what does mom do? Call up the teacher in the middle of the kids tantrum? 
No, no, it doesn't have to be in the middle of the tantrum, but but just to you know say to the teacher, hey, this is what happened this morning. Can you just offer some words of encouragement? Because again, it's never about making the child feel bad. It's never about saying you shouldn't have done that. It's I heard you had a hard time. And you were physically intimidating your mom this morning. What can I do to help you? For some reason, it is so scary for us who have grown up in this culture, who have been parenting in this culture to reach out and ask for help. We feel like we need to have it all figured out and we don't. Help is out there, but we have Absolutely. to open ourselves up to it. Right. Take that chance. Be vulnerable. Be willing to admit, I need help to do this. Yeah. And and I can speak, Jen, from my own experience of being a single parent to an extremely challenging child. Yeah. I took this very male approach of, you know, I, you know, I don't need help with this. I'm a school social worker, you know, and right? I got this. Right. And that was probably the worst thing I ever could have done is not reach out for help when I really needed it. Most people, I'm guessing, I don't have any actual stats to back this up, but I'm guessing that most people wait longer than they, I, you know, you reaching out sooner can be better for everybody, but Absolutely. we, we want, we are like, oh, I have to really, really need the help. I have to explore it all. So I guess what I'm trying to say is reach out sooner. Don't make yourself suffer because help is out there and people do want to help. People want the best for you and your kids. Right. Absolutely. And and look, most people, when they are asked to help a child, they're very willing to do that, especially if they're right? invested in the child. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Give us an example, a very encouraging and inspiring example of perhaps a family and a young man that you've worked with where, uh, you know, what kind of growth did you see? It probably did get worse, but then what happened? Yeah. So I will, you know, one of the, one of the beautiful things about, you know, what, what I do is that, and, you know, having the public platform is I do hear from a lot of parents, what they say is that when they stopped accommodating their child, you know, not only has it made life at home more peaceful, but the most important thing is that their kids feel better about themselves. And when they see that their kids feel better about themselves, that's what makes all the difference in the world. And I know you're asking for a specific example, but to be honest, I hear this quite regularly, which I'm very sure. fortunate of. And and really, you know, what, what I tell parents is this is not about me. This is about what you've done. Okay. And, and when you've implemented these things and you can tolerate, right, the fact that your child's going to experience temporary discomfort. And when you can tolerate things might have to temporarily get worse before they get better, you will come out on the other side of this in a much better place as a family. When kids, well, this isn't just true for kids. It's true for all of us. When a person feels better about themselves, they treat others better. I mean, that's just, yes. it's a human thing. When we feel bad about ourselves, we kind of are lashing out like we're inside a box. I know I do this. So, I mean, a 15-year-old boy 15-year-old boy with ADHD is certainly not going to be more pulled together uh, in that circumstance than I am. Right. Ryan, tell us uh, more about how parents can work with you if they need to, what kinds of offerings that you have, because this is not easy stuff. This isn't like, well, I listened to this podcast and I got my life figured out now. No, this is very complicated stuff, <laughs> emotionally complicated. So what I always suggest to people is if they're interested in learning more about it, to go to my YouTube channel first, because that's a free resource. Um, and I have videos there categorized in the playlist. So there's the behavior playlist, the emotional regulation playlist, the executive function playlist. Um, and then if people really want to you know, take action and implement strategies, um, I have a membership site, which is parent training and parent training is the you know American Academy of Pediatrics recommended treatment. Um, so that's my way of 
providing uh, parent training. And I want to mention, I, I took a bunch of different parent training programs first, and I found found value in, in all of them. The one thing I found missing from all of them was they didn't come at this from the angle of executive functioning. You know, mm. so none of them were ADHD specific. So I said, I want to take all the good things I learned from these different programs, but do so with, uh, you know, coming from the angle of executive functioning and building executive function skills, because that's really what this is about for families of kids with ADHD. Sure. And I know that you have said many times, you know, these strategies, um, the things that you teach, they work for kids, period. For our listeners, one of the, the reasons why we love talking to you is because you really get boys as well. If uh, you haven't listeners, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to, I think it was one of our first conversations, you know, teaching boys social skills. You understand that the way boys think and interact in groups is different. And middle-aged moms, like we don't get that in the same way that you do. So Shout out to you for that. Thank you. And just to that point, you know, what I always say is when people say, well, how is this applicable to girls? And I say a lot of the foundational skills I teach in all my membership site webinars are all applicable to girls. However, when it comes to social skills, I didn't grow up female. I don't know right. the experience of, of having female-female relationships. You know, I don't have the experience of understanding how girls form friendships. Yes, I've seen it because I've been doing this a long time, but I have a very different understanding of it with boys. Yes. Yes. Well, that's great for our listeners that you've got that intimate understanding because Janet and I, we did not grow up as boys. So we have had to try and learn about that. And that's why we <laughs> talk to people like you. <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. It is always a pleasure. Listeners, it's ADHDDude.com. I encourage you to follow him on Facebook as well. He posts a lot of useful content. And Thank you. whether you watch the whole thing or not, you will find your thinking shifting. And your thinking has to shift before anything else changes. I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Ryan, take care. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Ryan's been with us four times now, and we keep bringing him back because he always has such great practical advice that goes for every child and every family. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Janet Allison of boysalive.com and Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. As always, if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend. And as always, thank you for supporting our sponsors. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.